This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another Cosmic Salon, and I'm bringing back my friend Derek Hunter. He has just finished a very large project and wants to talk about it, and I want to talk about it because it ties into things I love and actually bits of my genealogy as well, which I shared with Derek and I don't share publicly. So Derek knows how tied into all this I actually am, which makes it more intriguing for me. And so without further ado, we'll get Derek in and get this baby started. Mr. Derek Hunter, how are you doing? Hey, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on here, Nish. I just, uh, as you, as you mentioned, this is something that I'm super Super duper excited about and have been since my teens. So the last 30 something years, it was just something that's been a lifelong obsession of mine. And we've talked over the years about your past and and it is interesting how it connects to this period of time. So it's a really fascinating thing to look into. So I'm just really grateful that you have me here. So thank you. It's a great pleasure to always, always have you on and chat with you. I feel like I don't do it enough. And I think this is the technical second time I've had you on this show, but you've been on the other. Yes. Let's just do a very fast bio and get into the meat of this. So just for people that may not have heard you on other shows and on mine, who are you, Derek Hunter? Sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I, I would consider myself first and foremost a storyteller. This is the most recent book I just published, Anonymous Agnostic Antichrist, is my 13th book. And so most of my books are works of fiction. I'm really 
very much into telling stories, you know, and telling stories that are motivated by character, uh, that explore psychological situations that are both realistic and also surrealistic. And so I, I like to balance the two of the of the realism and surrealism. Um, I also created a way of life that has helped me these past 10 years. It's called Love Chaos. And uh, that's really helped me a lot. I've written three books about that. Eventually, later on in my life, I do plan to get back into writing more about Love Chaos, but I have a lot of stories to tell. And so uh, it's going to be quite a while from now before I get back into Love Chaos again in terms of the books. But uh, I do host uh, support meetings for people with Love Chaos. And uh, I, I also help people here in Los Angeles who are coming out of prison to reenter society. Uh, that's what I do as my job. And uh, I also am a father of an 18-year-old son. But that's me in a nutshell. Excellent. And I love you in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> so let's bring this subject on. So tell us, what is this new book you've written? And as you said earlier, this is a culmination of a very long journey getting this book out, both focused and then all the breadcrumbs that got you to the point of focus where you decided, I'm going to do this book. What is this book? What are we looking at? Yes, yeah, so it's it's called Anonymous Agnostic Antichrist, and it tells the story of the people who wrote the plays and poetry with William Shakespeare's name on them. And so this journey began when I was a teenager. I uh, first fell in love with Shakespeare when I was uh, a freshman in high school. I was I was fortunate. I went to a great high school in Seattle called Nova, and it was uh, modeled off of a, a, an English school that was very radical in its teaching. Uh, so a lot of very like, you know, hippie counterculture people who were running the school from the 60s and they were still running it when I was going to the school in the early 90s. And uh, I just I had a great teacher who made Shakespeare exciting, you know, and I think that's the key thing when it comes to Shakespeare. People sometimes can get into it and sometimes they can't. And a lot of it has to do with who's the gatekeeper for Shakespeare for the person. If someone can introduce it to you in an exciting way then I think a lot of times it's easy to get caught up in it and become passionate about the works. So that's what happened to me as like a, a 14-year-old kid. And uh, and I fell in love with other writers too, but it was just something like just the, just the, it was the language, the character, the stories just was just, it, it's, there's a reason for why so many people fall in love with these works. Then I think it was in my sophomore year, I had to write an essay about the, the biography of Shakespeare. And so I had to, I looked at, I, Looked at, he did some research, and I was looking into to the biographies, and I was just enormously disappointed, and kind of like heartbroken, you know, that the the factual information that we have on the person uh, William Shakespeare from Stratford was just not gelling. It wasn't um, connecting with the works themselves, you know. And I, I got into artist biographies in my teens. It not only just with writers such as uh, James Joyce was a, a, a big, big love of mine at that time, too. And I loved J Joyce's personal story. I loved his the, his struggles and his search for, for identity and, and in Ireland, you know, and, and just finding his way in life. And it was just you could see that connection between the personal and the work. And then there was others, too, people like Dostoevsky and Arthur Rimbaud. And I just thought, this doesn't make sense. You can have two different lives for sure. 
and somebody like T.S. Eliot was a banker. And so he was a banker on the one hand, and then he was a great poet on the other. But there would be some kind of evidence of some kind of burning artistic life. And then you do see that with T.S. Eliot. Some people say, well, Shakespeare didn't write the works of Shakespeare because of the fact that uh, there's just so little known about him. That's actually not true. We know quite a bit about him, and we know quite a bit about his peers of the time. All the information we have are just purely business transactions. Uh, someone who was completely uninterested in the life of creativity. And so this set me on a 30-year journey to try to find out, well, who was the person then? If it wasn't Shakespeare from Stratford, then who was it? Certainly not alone in this. There's been millions of people over, over the centuries, really, who have been obsessed with this question, too, you know, from Mark Twain to Sigmund Freud to, to Walt Whitman to Charlie Chapman, just so many people over a long period of time who've questioned the authorship of Shakespeare. So on that journey, uh, this obsession, I was trying to find the right person. And uh, it has been an amazing journey of looking into all these different other people who might have written the plays in poetry, whether it be Christopher Marlowe or Francis Bacon, or the most popular candidate nowadays is Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford. Um, but there's been many, many others. I think if you go on Wikipedia, you can find, I think there's like officially 80 candidates who have been proposed as to be the true author. And I've looked into all of them. I've also created my own uh, uh, possibilities that no one's ever thought of before. And it was just something that I, I decided And when I was writing that essay when I was in a, a junior in high school. I was like, you know, someday I want to write a story that is satisfying to me. And hopefully I would find the evidence that would be un undisputed evidence to show that this was the person. I decided, well, if I can't find that, I would have, I would, I would want to at least come up with a story that made the most sense to me and also, but also backed up with, with evidence as well. So I wrote, I think, uh, well over a hundred different outlines for stories, uh, the different theories, different, uh, candidates, authorship candidates, and uh, and I set a deadline for myself. So uh, this past December 5th, uh, this past two, a week ago from today, December 5th uh, of this year marked the 400th anniversary of the publication of the first folio. The first folio was the first collection of Shakespeare's plays. It was about 37, it was 37 of Shakespeare's plays published, half of them for the first time. Uh, the other half had been published before in a smaller form, uh, what were called quartos. So quartos in those days were individualized publications, and about half of them were published before then, a lot of them in not very good quality. Most editors, most um, theater producers over the these centuries, these last 400 years, have used the first folio as the benchmark uh, of, for, of the plays. They are the uh, generally for the most part, except for maybe Richard III, for the most part, are much higher in quality than the um, previously published plays. They don't actually know the exact date of when it was published, but what they do know is that the first recorded sale was by a widowed antiquarian by the name of Edward Daring. Edward Daring was a young man uh, who had lost his wife, uh, who he was very much in love with, and uh, the year before, in 1622, and he, uh, like his father, was an antiquarian, and he set, he wrote a, um, uh, a, he 
basically recorded the sale of two books, uh, uh, the two different versions that were being sold. And they were very expensive. These books, the first folios, were enormously expensive at the time. It was a big enterprise to publish this book, and so he was the first person to uh, to buy the book. So uh, my feeling is that the book was actually published on this day. Uh, it it might have been published earlier for sure, um, but uh, in many, a lot of, like in November of this year, there was a lot of celebrations regarding the first folio because it was, you know, people think that somewhere in November is when it was published. Um, but I, I chose many, many years ago, decades ago, actually, I like, okay, I've got to get this story right before December 5th of 2023. I'm going to publish this book on the 400th anniversary of the first folio. So I've got to find the right story, uh, hopefully the one that is seems to be the most authentic, but certainly the one that makes the most sense to me. So it was a long journey, a really long journey. Uh, these past 30 years. And every theory has some validity to it. Uh, I changed my mind uh, probably a thousand times, uh, not not exaggerating. Uh, I, I a, a number of times uh, questioned my mental health, if this was causing some mental health issues for me. I gave up a number of times. I gave up like a year ago. Uh, I was like, I just couldn't feel like there was a, a, a story or a candidate that made the most sense. So a couple of years ago, I came across this one theory of uh, Thomas North uh, proposed by this guy named Dennis McCarthy. Now, Dennis McCarthy has been uh, working on this theory for the last 15 years. That's all he does. So like for me, for the last 30 years, I've been doing a lot of other stuff. Well, for Dennis, this is all he does. <laughs> all he does is, is basically he, he what he did, he published a book and it was called Here Be Dragons in 2008 and it was a science book about geology and how he was showing uh the different the movement of different species of animals throughout the world and it was uh, actually quite quite a highly regarded book that's being taught in a lot of geology and uh biology classes today he wanted to do the same thing the evolution of literature and so he thought well let me write a book about shakespeare and how shakespeare you know where did the evolution of Shakespeare come from. So in the process of that, he found that there was this uh, this other person named Thomas North, who he believed was the tr- was the author of the original plays. So Dennis believes that Shakespeare was the adapter of these older plays by North, and so uh, he basically you know is showing that there were these old plays that existed long before Shakespeare was around that were uh, uh, adapted for the time that Shakespeare was around. And so I came across his theory a couple years ago and it was very convincing. And again, I've seen every single theory that's been put forth. So not just the most popular candidates, but I've also seen them for a, a wide assortment of other, other candidates too that are, have a lot less support. And um, his was definitely the most convincing. Uh, he basically used a technique where he looks at the writing of Thomas North, uh, which were these translations that Thomas North did. Thomas North wrote translations. Uh, his most famous one is Plutarch's Lives, uh, which has been widely widely known as the, being the, the source for the, the Roman plays like Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra and Coriolanus, uh, and also Timon of Athens, which is a Greek play. 
and there's there's whole passages that are just taken verbatim word by word from um, Plutarch's lives, the North translation. And Shakespeare Shakespeare scholars know this. Yeah, they just they, there's no no one no one denies that part of it. But where uh, Dennis went further was to show that in all these other plays, there's evidence to show of Thomas North's literary footprint. And so what he did was he used a couple things. One was that uh, there, in the Ted Kaczynski case back in the 90s, the way they discovered it was Ted, Ted Kaczynski was the Unabomber was that they matched his writings with his own name on it with the Unabomber's writings. And they, that's how they actually identified him. Uh, and so there's there's word pairings. So if there's enough words uh, in a sentence that match with someone else, like let's say I write a set, uh, a whole essay and then I write another essay, but without my name attached to it, a lot of times I'm going to use the same kind of words, uh, word strings that will be the same. And that's how you can kind of identify an author is the, the, the word selection and where you place the words and how you use certain words to express something. So he used that technique to make that connection between Thomas North and the and Shakespeare's plays. He also used computer technology for college students or college professors to make sure that uh, the students aren't ripping off other people. Uh, if there are these plagiarism software uh, tools. And so he used plagiar plagiarism software tools to do the matching. And he's actually come up with thousands of cases. And it's not just like uh, like examples of where it's like about two completely different things. Like in every case, they're ba they're, it's not just the, 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 the language, the words, it's also the, the meaning behind the words. What are they expressing are, are the same. And it's amazing. When I came across this, I was just, I was really blown away. Uh, the only problem I had was just in terms of the dating of it, of, of Thomas North's life. Uh, he did live to be uh, quite old. I uh, probably died in 1608. There's a record of him being alive in 1607. Um, and then, I, and I was also concerned in terms of the quality of the writing. Uh, the, his translations are great, but it, it, it's still quite a big jump from the translations to the plays and poetry themselves. And that was my problem. And then I came across, uh, well, basically two writers that I, I had never really discovered before um, was Thomas Middleton and John Webster. And so Thomas Middleton and John Webster were under King James's rule. They were two playwrights that were popular under those times. I had read plenty of other writers at the time, Ben Johnson, Christopher Marlowe, Thomas Kidd, Thomas Watson, Robert Greene. Edmund Spencer, who was brilliant. I love Edmund Spencer's poetry. The, uh, the Fairy Queen is, is, is a masterpiece. Uh, There's a lot of great writers at the time, but I, I still had a problem with the dating part of it. The, basically, my feeling was that there was a lot of editing going on well up to the uh, 1623 first folio. So someone had to be alive at that time. And so the person who was alive at that time and was writing absolutely brilliant work was Thomas Middleton. Uh, his two greatest plays were published in uh, 1622. So he was at the height of his creativity at that time. You look at the time, all the plays are collaborations. So they're all, not all, but 90% of the plays are collaboration. Very, 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 very rarely is there a play written in those days by one person. Uh, they were all collaborations. 
there generally was one person who was like the plotter and that person wrote the outline of the story and might write some of the scenes, but then he would hand some other scenes to other writers to write. And the reason for this was that it could be written quicker. Uh, there was a high demand for plays in those days. Uh, people, the theater companies were, were putting on plays like, uh, like TikTok videos. I mean, it was just like constantly, constantly being produced. So they needed to, to come up with plays. And a lot of times they would be revising old plays. So a lot of the Shakespeare plays were a process of writing of you have one person in charge, Thomas North, who had maybe I would say a good 20 people he collaborated with over a 50 year period. And so you have this enormous body of work, uh, a good like really good 40 plays, two narrative poems uh, and also uh, 154 sonnets. Uh, which most of them, I believe, with were had North as the main person. But in, what made it work for me, what made the story work for me, was that there were other people that helped him. And so then that was the clicker for me. And uh, so this story is about their lives. It's about Thomas North primarily, but it's also about his his collaborators, the people who worked with him and their lives. This is also remarkable and it's only been a cursory thing for me to follow through the mystery because there's so much depth here. But I remember the first time I encountered the idea that William Shakespeare was really like a front for the possibility of where these masterful works come from. And so before we get moving into that, do you think that some of the mystery around this work, the canon of Shakespeare, is part of what's kept it so alive because some of the works of his peers that are well-known to deep literary folks are not at all known to most people, but Shakespeare has been kept alive. He's, his work still lives. Movies still happen and all that. Do you think that this could be somehow an intentional, bigger working, say magically, to keep him relevant through the centuries. That was one of my intentions. There's some healthy aspects to cancel culture for sure, uh, but there's a lot, to me, I think there's a lot of unhealthy aspects to it too. And one of the things is, is going back to history and just seeing things in, in a black and white kind of way. And not looking at the gray, like there was actually, you know, there is some really great things that were created in the Western canon by old dead white men, you know. And um, I don't think we have to erase everything in the past. There were some bad things, but then like there's some great things, you know. And so uh, Shakespeare, to me, is, is one of them. The other kicker for me for writing this book was not just writing another book about, like, well, who was the true author uh, of these plays and poetry, but also, too, was on, on a philosophical level of like, well, what was really going on and what's what what's the importance of what they were doing and how enormous, how really revolutionary it was what they were doing, how much of a game changer it was. I remember when I came across Harold Bloom's book, uh, The Invention of the Human, which was his book about Shakespeare. And so his theory was that Bloom said that uh, really 
before the Shakespeare canon, right, before the plays and poetry with Shakespeare's name on them, nobody really put the human being, uh, human beings as a center stage. It was always like whether it was for religious or political purposes, it was art was always, always sort of like about how do we promote some kind of other agenda? How can we put forth onto the uh, for the viewing public, the reading public, you know, some way of enshrining uh, some concept of deity? So not just Christianity or Judaism or Islam, but also prior to them, pagan, uh, the older ways, you know, like there's always sort of like humanity always found a way to make sure that something other than themselves were being explored. And that's not to say that human beings weren't being explored before, but not to this extent. And what's so radical about these plays and poetry was that if you look at the times themselves, the vast majority of poetry was devotional poetry, was about it was religious poetry. If you look a lot in terms of what people valued in those days, what people were killing each other over was religion. What what people were, were fighting over and arguing over what you know was 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 religious and political reasons. To me, it wasn't that radical, even if a person could get killed for it, uh, to have like a different religious perspective. Like if you were a Protestant in a Catholic country or a Catholic in a Protestant country, you know, like that was the main conflict in those days uh, during the that 16th century. And especially in England, where it was flip flopping, you know, you had King Henry VIII who started his own religion uh, and then his son, uh, Edward VI, who lived just for a short while, who w went even further with his Protestant religion and reforms. Uh, then his his sister took over, Mary, who brought Catholicism back to England, and she didn't live too long, for just for a few years. And then her sister, Queen Elizabeth, brought Protestant back. So just in a really short period of time in England, you have this flip-flopping of religion. And so and if you certainly people were being killed for it, were being, you know, it was a horrible, horrible time for religious folks, uh, it, you know, and if you had these views, it would get you in trouble for sure. But even in spite of that, I really feel like the really radical thing that these writers did, Thomas North and others, Christopher Marlowe, who was probably the most outspokenly heretical person uh, out, of, out of the bunch, but Thomas North was like for sure their, their ringleader was for them to be basically taking the approach that human beings was what what was the most interesting. And they were the ones that were the most fascinating to explore. And that to me is where I think for people today and into the future, where we can look to these works as not like, oh, here's this fucking boring piece of literature by this old dead white guy, uh, snore, snore, but more like, well, holy shit, this is the person, these are the people who in many ways created like uh, the modern existence. We have at the, in those days, it was the English language was being, the modern English language was being created. The vast majority of words that we use today were created during that period by these writers. Uh, just in, in the Shakespeare canon alone, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of words and phrases that were were invented in those works themselves. And so it's something that, you know, I think in terms of the uh, how does these how do these plays, how do these poetry, how does Shakespeare itself become something that is continues to be relevant 
is how it is has played such an enormous role in our in our lives in in modern lives you know in terms of how we look at ourselves how how we look at life you know you, you can't really think of uh, anybody really doing anything like to be or not to be you know that is the question which is a, a question just being posed as a human being asking himself by himself is it worth being alive you know and it, it's not being posed in any kind of religious way political way it's just a, it's just this guy the deepest part the pit of his despair just asking himself whether it's worth living or not you know and, and it's, it's hard to find something like that and that's just like one dramatic example but there's like thousands of other examples of where you see for the first time the human dilemma uh, really taking center stage this is hard to get away from in our modern culture the significance of what was going on with these key players in england at the time and uh, i think people lose well i know people lose context easily yes. they use people are losing context now from day to day so imagine Absolutely. when england was flip-flopping and all these great houses at the time had to if you were catholic you had priest keeps right you had the build into your buildings places to hide the priests and yes. and private uh places of worship when it was protestant and then of course when elizabeth came in it was 60 years of protestants so when we're starting to look at some of these key players most people that have looked into Shakespeare know these names. Thomas North, Christopher Marlowe, Edward de Vere, Francis Bacon. These are big names. They come from a myriad of houses. And then in genealogy, you can see that there's a lot of, well, there's, you know, there's cousins and stuff going on here as well. And so this is all very intertwined, but psychically, it feels to me in this period of time when these works are being written and we have the name of William Shakespeare coming forth as the writer that the times were dangerous, language was changing, people were changing, ways were changing, everything was dangerous. And I think dangerous times create great art. And we could go back yes. and give example after example after example of it. These are the times when the best, most intense archetypes come forward and present themselves in new ways for storytellers to tell stories. You have to be cunning in the way you present work because this person's touchy, that overlord's touchy, the jester gets, yeah. you know, the jester gets to tell the jokes, but... You know, how cutting can they be? So the works of Shakespeare and that canon are particularly juicy. And like you said, they bring in common people and they separate out the idea of all art does not have to be representative of divinity and the process of divinity. I think about what happened to Botticelli's and what more could we have had had the fire not consumed it. I think about Bruno and uh, mm -hmm. you know, when you step too far over one line and you don't have somebody powerful enough protecting you, we could talk about a lot of 
work that came down to us, John D's and and that whole thing, when you have the protection of say a, a monarch, you're generally okay, but to a point. So for this stuff to survive and be in the modern day told in fashionable movies here and there, it seems like, there's always some sort of good Shakespeare retelling somewhere in right. in the zeitgeist. Every decade, there's like a really great version of one of his things that's new. And, of course, all the, the very uh, orthodox people with Shakespeare will protest about the use of different storytelling methods, like bringing in modern music and trying to make it modern. The thing is that those works were very modern, that those works all of a sudden brought in ideas that could attach to the local people. And also, I think people forget that the idea that the theater was really coming into its own because before this, we yes. had small plays, you know, that some people call them mummers plays and just small little bits of like puppetry and all that. It didn't start to be a th- thing until this period oh sure well yeah no you're absolutely right i mean it just you're at, it, there was something going on there you know i think that there was definitely uh there was human beings at work but for sure i think that there was some kind of supernatural forces that were at work in those days because it's just it's immense and you're absolutely right about the public theaters it, and so thomas north was that bridge so thomas north began writing plays uh before there was even public theaters. There was no public theaters when he first started writing in the late 1550s under Queen Mary. Uh, So he transitioned from Queen Mary to Queen Elizabeth already having written plays, and they were always for the court. So they're always for court court performances for, for the queen and for everyone that was in her court. You know, all the aristocracy, all the powerful people that were under her were watch these plays and their entertainments and, um, and they were they were definitely sophisticated. They weren't just uh, they weren't where they weren't lacking in any kind of characterization or drama or language. They, they there are some plays published from those days, not many, but there are. Is one called Gorbuduck, uh, which was written by Thomas Sackville and Thomas Norton, who were peers to to North and who I believe was, were collaborators, but. Um, they were all these private performances, or they were they were performances at the ends of court, which was for all the legal people at the time, all the lawyers and judges. Uh, they were very much into plays, and a lot of the writers came from that. Thomas North was a lawyer; he studied law, and he was in that world. Uh, Sackville and all, they all were in the the legal world. So there was a lot of people in the legal world that were connected to theater, and you can see it. You can understand. I mean, there's there's definitely an element of in terms of speech and argumentation and how to present something and, and storytelling through words. For sure, you find them in both worlds, in the theater and in, in the legal world. The public theaters, they started in the late 1570s. So the late 1570s, you start seeing uh, public theaters in England and London, and they became smash hit. Uh, the, the theater, the people, the public of, of London, you know, many people in those days, they didn't know how to read. They didn't know how to read or write. It was very common for people not to know how to read or write. And so it was a way for them to appreciate their own language uh, without actually knowing how to write it, you know, um, so or read it. 
And so it was a way of fostering culture within the English culture. And the, and the queen and her people saw this as a way to really create something uh, radical and revolutionary. And uh, it wasn't altogether altruistic. Uh, she was a Protestant, and most of her most powerful nobles were Catholic still. So she needed to get support. And so she realized by educating the public was a way to get people on her side. So there was uh, uh, there was actually some schools that were like public schools that were, were they were quite radical, too. So you had schools like the um, Merchant Taylor's uh, Public School for Boys and also Westminster School, both of them in London, uh, starting in the 1560s and 15. Well, they really got going in the 1560s, 1570s, really. And a lot of really famous people came from these schools that were of the lower and middle classes, people like Edmund Spencer or Ben Johnson or Thomas Kidd, Thomas Lodge. They didn't come from the aristocracy. They came from from the lower classes. Their families didn't have money. So, But Elizabeth, she wanted to open the doors to her people to be educated. And again, it wasn't altogether altruistic because by getting them educated, she got them she got educated people to support her, you know, and be in positions of power, whether it be religion or politics or the legal world. And then, of course, through the arts. So there was all this education going on. And what happened was there was a lot of these uh, these these men who were educated, but there was only so many jobs. So they would go to these schools like Westminster or, or Merchant Taylor School. Some of them would continue on to the to the universities. So either go to Oxford or Cambridge. Um, some of them would complete their studies there. Some of them wouldn't. But there was only so many job openings for these these guys that were smart and educated. And that you was either you you become like get into the, the legal field or you get into the religious field or politics uh, but again, there was only so many openings. So you had all these educated guys. And so what a lot of them turned to was writing plays. Uh, a lot of them turned to writing plays. And there's, there's there's hundreds and hundreds of playwrights from those days that we, we've we lost. We've lost the history. They're just, there's, we, we don't know about their existence. The vast majority of plays from those days, especially prior to 1590, have been lost, you know, and, and most of them were written anonymously. Most of them were, were, you know, put on the stage anonymously and published anonymous, anonymously. And so it was just this uh, explosion of, of creativity because of the dynamics of the times. You had all these educated people. Uh, and so and, play, and there was this demand of plays that was like the, the most popular form of entertainment. And it was also the people in power saw it as a way of educating their people but it was also propaganda too like the queen and her and the and powerful men under her were making sure that the the plays were representative of of their agenda uh, and people got into, into into trouble for for writing stuff that wasn't there to their liking for sure and i also think that in terms of the magical aspect the occult aspect of those times you know prior to king james there was definitely some frowning upon in terms of people practicing magic, you know, doing their craft, you know. Uh, there was wise women and wise men during those times. John Dee was by no means the only person. John Dee was not alone in terms of his work, uh, what he did with uh, Kelly. Uh, There's a lot of people that were involved with with the magical work. And the, the more you read about 
you know, more plays you read. The, there's a lot of references to it being a common practice, whether it be alchemy or witchcraft or astrology was very popular. Uh, so there's just a lot of different occult practices that were going on at the time. It wasn't necessarily something you'd want to make public, but it was a very common thing. Um, just like sexuality in those days, that bisexuality was a very common practice among men and women in those days. But it was, again, because of the uh, of authorities and the, and the, the standards of authority, of, of social norms, it was it was still frowned upon, but it was also kind of understood as being a, uh, like as like a semi acceptable thing. It was it's very weird when you look at those times. People did things, and there were atheists back then. I mean, there's mention of them people who did not believe in God. Whether men were attracted to other men, or women attracted to other women, or uh, the attraction to uh, teenagers uh, was a very common thing. Uh, so there's all these things going on which would be considered taboo, but they knew it existed, whether it was witchcraft or uh, alchemy. Uh, and it, it was uh, really the, the kind of like the, uh, the, the King James, because he had this uh, horrible fear of anything esoteric, whether it be witchcraft or, the, uh, or uh, alchemy or any of that stuff. He was really hateful towards that. Uh, it really started then, but prior to that, I mean, it was frowned upon, but it was just kind of accepted like, oh, okay, well, that 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 exists, that happens. But yeah, I definitely feel like it. there was a massive explosion going on. And, uh, and you talked about protection. Uh, that's the, the other thing that made me kind of go into the story that I do, and I go into Thomas North's background. I basically created a story for him, who he really was. Uh, that made sense to me because you're right. There's there's so much that is lost from those times um, that it for it to have survived and to sort of survived in the state that it did as great as it did over a long period of time. That's like to me takes a concerted effort. And so I don't think that we have the, the Shakespeare canon today by accident. I don't think it was just sort of like, oh wow, here's these plays. Well, aren't they? They're brilliant. Like there was definitely people whose intention was to preserve these plays. I definitely feel like there was forces at work that wanted this Shakespeare canon to be a cultural force to be reckoned with. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
Yeah, and see, this is the thing that intrigues me the most. And this is why when we look at markers through history, gateways into particular time periods, we need these markers to get us there. And the the canon of Shakespeare is one of those that brings us back into the significance of of that period, the context of that period, because then you get in through there. So you're interested in this play or that play or this Ophelia or, you know, Horatio, whatever character you're in, then you're, you're into the plays and then you're into the next one. You're, then you're looking at this and that and you're getting curious and then you're curious about this time period and it opens up the gateway into this period and then these other characters start to come through in particular i love the devere's and i've I've got third i don't know 12 or 13 pages of devere's in my my genealogy and so you start to get into the juiciness of what's going on the intrigue but there's something magical about pushing these characters forward this is the whole idea you brought up with john d and kelly is what would we have of alchemy in the general modern populace in pop culture if we didn't have John D? It would still be there in the undercurrent, but John D takes you to a specific time and place, which happens to be this time and place. And because of the patronage of Queen Elizabeth, who I think everyone recognizes as the queen of the arts, uh, where she was bringing in the common to the common person, something higher. So when we're talking about arts, we're talking about a higher principle and reading and writing has long been a gateway for people. This is why we have priests that would translate the works of the Bible, the religious works, and tell the common people what these things said. And, and you know, we could talk about Luther and Calvin and all this other stuff that goes on. And Queen Elizabeth with the Common Church of England trying to push this idea that we can get the common people directly to a source but our source the curated source we want them to have and so the plays which are archetypal these stories are ancient these are ways in which a person can project what's going on inside into the outer world vis-a-vis life and reality vis-a-vis a facsimile of life in reality, which is a play and or a story. And you see how deep this layer goes. And then, of course, all the themes of bisexuality, which go back to the ancient world. You know this. This stuff is was really common with the Greeks and the Romans and all this. And back, yes. it's everywhere. But at this time of Shakespeare, women were not on the stage it was men right. portraying women, and so we have all this going on. And the intrigue of political bias, as you've already mentioned, is there as well. But some of that stuff does not translate to the modern viewer of, say, click on any version 
in the last 20 years of a Shakespeare play that's either being put on by your local society that may be an avant-garde one that's doing it or the, some of the movies that have really stripped away the the what now people consider the stuffiness of English culture from that period. Um, there is something bigger here, and it's something that's moving us, the people that seek, this information into something deeper in our lives. I have learned through my life that the stories, not just Shakespeare's, are all checks in my spiritual growth. And I can look back and understand that this took me to that point and that took me to that point and then pull a thread and it all comes together. Well, if we look at Shakespeare through history... And we start pulling these threads like you've been doing in this work and you start pulling out, shaking out just like one happens in the hangman where the coins are shook out of his trousers and he can't go further until there's a recognition of self, until there's an acceptance that all these key players, no matter what the real truth are, are intertwined in this ultimate story. So now, no matter what, when a person that has done any work, Derek, understands that Shakespeare is not Shakespeare. Shakespeare is also North and Marlowe and Devere and Bacon and all these other people and understands that there is a soup, a cacophony of voices, a soup of flavors, of spices, of ingredients that create what we have here and now is Shakespeare. And this is where I, I'm curious about when you talk about so just the naming of it, anonymous agnostic Shakespeare. And as we've brought this forward with all the context of the period and, and brought some of these names forward again, they of course live because we're bringing them forward. Look at what happened with, uh, Austin Osmond Spare. Most people didn't know who he was. Now most occultists know who he is. And in his time, he was well-known, but then he kind of got lost until people start digging in the dirt again. And you've seen this. Right. And now he's super popular. Everyone knows who he is. There's a million books written on him. This becomes significant to us as a culture. And I'm talking about a culture in the whole realm. I'm not talking about a specific culture. I'm talking about the culture of people. And these stories are our stories. And you brought up cancel culture. Shakespeare is more than meets the eye. And the problem with cancel, cancel culture is so much of it is based in ignorance, illiteracy, and what they call participation mystique through the Jungian eyes or groupthink or mind think think or propagandize control, much like the the feathering of movements through history. We could look back at the French Revolution and see how that all trickled forward. So what I see with council culture is back again to this period of a lot of illiteracy. In modern council culture, you have people counseling the ones that were defending equal rights for gays, blacks, uh, this religion, right. that religion. There's a lot of illiteracy going on, and they're just canceling everything. 
Well, Shakespeare right. lived through that period, a period like that. This work, Shakespeare, Shakespeare as a work, as as yes. an entity, and came through it and is still here. And even the people that now want to cancel all dead white men and anything by white men, Shakespeare is still here, and I don't think it's going anywhere. This is part of the greater working, whether it was intentional or not, but I do think there is a conspiracy here to keep this work moving forward. And what you were saying earlier was really ringing a bell with, uh, say, Thomas North and the stories he was telling, because we do stand on the shoulders of the greats behind us. These people were influenced by the great stories told in the Greek and Roman times. Yes, absolutely. So I'm handing all that. I'm just bringing all that up and seeing where you go with that right now because this looks like the same kind of situation. Like I said, there's a lot of illiteracy to historical context now just like there was then. There's a lot of turmoil and tumultuousness, just like there was then. There's a lot of pitting people against people, just like there was then. We see a lot of burnings and torturing and uh, dissidents happening. There's all kinds of similarities that can be drawn between the period of Shakespeare and where we are now, and Shakespeare still standing. Yeah, absolutely. There's, 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 there's actually bizarrely a lot of connections. I mean, just taking, for example, uh, back in, in the early part of this decade uh, of COVID. So uh, no, many people know back in those days, there was, there was the plague was a real thing. And, uh, you know, and, and so, I mean, that was a case of where people were really, were really, really, truly dying. Like, you know, I mean, COVID, that's a whole other topic to talk about, but it was something in terms of how it affected how people lived. Uh, there, there's some r- relationship there. You know, theater theaters were closed down. You know, because of the plague. People don't realize this, but uh, when the the, the three great uh, publications of poetry with Shakespeare's name on them all took place during plague years when the theaters were closed down. Yes, in 1593 was Venus and Adonis, which was the first time that Shakespeare's name, name ever appeared in print, ever. And so you have that in 1594, you had The Rape of Lucrece, uh, and then 1609, you had uh, the, the sonnets, Shakespeare's sonnets. So that's just one example, but you're right, like the other examples you gave are very much, very, very much true. Uh, it was a t- that Those times were very divisive. You were either on this side or you were on that side. You were either a Protestant or you were a Catholic. Like in France, for example, there was the, the Massacre of Paris, which was actually a title of a play by Marlowe, which was a, a, a period when the, the Catholics uh, just massacred just thousands of Protestants in Paris. Um, there was just, it was just a lot of tension in those days, you know, and, and in terms of cancel culture, like there was definitely uh, a sense of people had to be very careful with what they said. Now, in, in, in that case, you know, it was maybe offending the wrong person. It wasn't just the queen. There was other people. You had to be very careful with offending them and, and saying or doing the wrong thing. There was, there was this one guy. His name was Stubbs, and he wrote a little pamphlet. There's a lot of pamphlets being written back in those days that were arguing about this, that, or whatever. whatever. 
or self-help. There was actually a lot of self-help stuff. Like most of the publications that were published in those days were various different kinds of self-help books, uh, which is also another connection to this to recent times as well. But there was a guy who wrote a pamphlet, and he wrote it. He was he was very pro-English, and it was just like it was around the time it wasn't the first. Uh, French guy that Elizabeth considered marrying. It was later on in her life. It was uh, in the late 1580s uh, that she was considering. I forget the guy's name, but he was a French Frenchman, and she was considering marrying him. And a lot of the English at the time were really upset that she was even considering to marrying a Frenchman. Like why she should marry an Englishman, you know? And so she, he, this guy, decided to write this pamphlet about this. And so his punishment for that was uh, cutting off his hands. Uh, well, what the, the hand that wrote the, the pamphlet. Uh, so ironically, his name was, was Stubbs, right? So he had a stub for where his hand used to be. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, there was just a lot of the similarities between those days and now. Um, I think one of the things that we can look at today is how can individuals be authentic, right? How can you be truly authentic when there's just so much uh, hostility towards uh, anything that doesn't fit into kind of like a box of a particular way of looking at the world. And I think that one of the beauties of the Shakespeare canon was here was this enormous body of work. And we really have to remember that we're looking at a good 37 to 40 plays uh, each of them, like, really honestly could be, I mean, are really are masterpieces. Uh, and you just have all this, this this poetry, too, the published poetry are masterpieces. And they're all about people, you know, and, and people really trying to search for their authentic self. And even in the cases of of the, the bad guys, the people who are, are doing the most horrible things, uh, like Richard III or Macbeth, right, or Iago. What, what's really fascinating yes. to me, and I think for a lot of people, is the way you get into the hearts and minds of even like the so-called worst people, the people who are killing people to get to a position of power. People are willing to kill little children to get into positions of power, which is what Richard III does. He kills his two nephews uh, in order so that he can become king. Uh, Macbeth also kills children. So Shakespeare always under he always, one of the things you always know with Shakespeare is if he wants you to see human beings at their worst, it's the killing of children. That is the, as as low as you could possibly go. There's nothing worse that any human being can do than to take a life of like of a child, right? And from play to play, you you'll see this again and again. There's King John is is one of the the, the crucial parts of the drama. Uh, is 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 a child who is in position to take uh, to become king, but King John is, it wants to take his life in order to retain power. But what what's fascinating to me is the way that Thomas North and his other writers were able to get into even these worst of human beings and find a way to look into their authentic soul who are these people what makes them tick and 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 so there was a, a big demand for i think trying there was so much competition and who could make the greatest the best play right 
So in an atmosphere, in a time, in an environment where there's this heightened state of creativity, uh, creative competition, you have to create the best possible work. And I think that that is one of the things. It's not only just like Thomas North and his genius and Thomas Middleton or Christopher Marlowe, Edmund Spencer or Ben Johnson or Richard Barnfield and all these other people. Uh, and also women in t- included, too. I really feel strongly that Emilie Lanier, who was a brilliant, brilliant poet herself, uh, and, and many modern-day feminists you know, cite her as an inspiration, as a proto-feminist, and uh, she wrote this one great work of poetry where she argued that uh, men, uh, where uh, Adam was just as responsible for evil as women were, as Eve. She even argues that women have a stronger connection to God. And that was very radical in 1611, you know, and, you're, and this was under King James, who was enormously misogynistic. Yeah. King James was hugely <laughs> misogynist, uh, uh, you know, and he wrote a, a book. Well, he didn't write it, but he had a book called uh, Witches. And his argument was that all women are witches. Uh, ben Johnson, who was a, a great playwright and was actually close to King James, tried to convince uh, King James to change his position and tried to change his mind that like, hey, look, you know, look at your wife, you know, or look at your other women that, you know, like they're they're not all bad. But uh, he wasn't able to change King James mind. But but yeah, so you have all these amazing people. There was, was like an atmosphere that was being created. And I think that that's what really was a beautiful thing in, in those days. In that sense, I don't see that happening now. Like, I don't see that same, like I do where I feel like the most interesting stuff going on right now is in the occult world. And there's still like a lot of bullshit that goes on in, in, the, in this world that we call the occult world. But in terms of like the most interesting stuff to me being done right now would be in the occult world in the last like, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, I, so, I suppose, you know. And in terms of film, in terms of movies, in terms of music, for sure, there's a lot of great, great bands and great musicians these days and great filmmakers. So there, there is there is a degree of a heightened state of co- creative competition, for sure. I should acknowledge that. But, yeah, I think that really when there are people kind of going at war with each other culturally, uh, like how we have now, like there's, there's these cultural wars, you know, wars between the red and blue states and all that, all that stuff, you know. And then, so back in those days, it was, it was the Catholics and the Protestants. But the the beauty of the Shakespeare canon was that it's not arguing for a Protestant universe. It's not arguing for a Catholic universe, right? It's not arguing for either. It's arguing for human beings. And again, like just getting back to why I brought up the evil characters in Shakespeare, is that even with the most despicable of human beings, the right Thomas North and the writers found something fascinating about them. And so, like, what I wanted to do with Anonymous Agnostic Antichrist was, like, there's satirical elements for sure. There's satirical elements in the, in the book for sure. But what I really wanted to do, I wanted to have each character in the book be as if they could have their own novel. Whether it would be Thomas North's mother, his father, his legal father, or his aunt, his, or her husband, his, his cousin, or uh, later on in the novel, he goes to France and he lives with the uh, the Montaigne family. So, you know, the, the, the French philosopher Montaigne, who's one of my favorite philosophers, you know, has been many over the centuries. People have noticed the, uh, a strong connection between 
Montaigne's essays, his philosophy, very humanistic philosophy, and the Shakespeare canon, uh, my feeling is that they were lifelong friends from their childhood, and that actually North, as a as a young man, as in teen years, he lived with the family. So I wanted to make it so that each person in the novel could have their own novel, and because that was what I love about Shakespeare. Every single character in those plays is fascinating. Every single one of them could have a play about them. And like that has always been really something that I've loved about Shakespeare is that you love these people in these plays. From the most worst person, from Richard III to Macbeth. Macbeth has one of the greatest soliloquies in the whole canon of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day until the last syllable of recorded time. And all these yesterdays are lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage. Until the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays are lighted fools the way to dusty death. Or did I say it already? Anyway, but the point I'm trying to say is that... uh, here is this murderer, right? And he's given this great this poetry to just talk about the futility of existence. He says it right after he finds out his wife dies. And so it, um, uh, it's something that, you know, you, it's weird a moment where you have this empathy towards this person after all he, what he's done. So whether you have this emotional connection to a murderer like Macbeth or to one of the most innocent and most beautiful creations in all of literature, Juliet, Romeo and Juliet. I mean, there's the, the passages in, in Romeo and Juliet. I mean, there's, uh, it's absolutely awe-inspiring. Here is this character, this young woman, who is just this, in this heightened state of a intelligence and emotional awareness and expression of love. It's just amazing, you know, and it just like there's just so many characters Hamlet, of course, is just one of the most amazing characters in all of arts. Yeah. But you have others like Falstaff, who's this great kind of like this, uh, this uh, enormous, just big this, uh, uh, explosion of of humor and mirth. and But also he's just a complete cad and does like these horrible things. And he's a con artist and he's got no sense of, uh, of honor. He, and this his most famous passage is about honor. And he, uh, he makes fun of honor, like there's no point in having honor. And you're you're right there in the heart of his heart as he's totally disrespecting any kind of notions of honor, you know. And it just, just it goes on and on and on of just all these people, all these characters that you just you could spend a lifetime exploring in Shakespeare in Thomas North's time. That's what the, his culture needed, and it's something that we need now. Is just for people to actually just be like absolutely obsessed with their best self, not like in TikTok videos and doing quick little selfies and stuff like that, but actually being willing to plumb your own depths and to plumb other people's depths, too. And and just to see like the wealth that is there. I mean, you can never stop exploring another human being. You can never stop exploring yourself. And that's what, to me, is like the Shakespeare canon does, is that you're never going to get, you could spend your whole life reading those plays and poetry, going to productions on stage, watching film versions, listening to radio productions. You'll never get to the point where you could say, 
I'm done. Yeah. Like it, yeah. you know, just keep going and going and going. Well, that's what's inspired me about about the work and the different iterations. As we're looking at the work of this book, what what you've created here, what was the thing in all these decades and then when you really made the consorted effort to to get this done and to to write this book, what was the marker that moved the most that you changed the most over an idea, a theme, a person where you just went from one end to the other. So I changed so often. I even went and believed that Shakespeare, the man from Stratford was the author many times, Edward de Vere many times, Christopher Marlowe many times. Those are like the three that I went back and forth on the most, but I also had others. Henry Neville was one, uh, William Stanley, the sixth Earl of Derby, uh, you know, Francis Bacon, his brother, Anthony Bacon. I think the biggest thing that it, where I really did an about face was, was the idea that it wasn't just one person for so long for, for really for up until recently, I just really held steadfast to the idea that it was one person because I just felt that you couldn't get a number of people to come up with something that brilliant, you know, and I just, I feel like you can't, it's really hard to create genius in, in, in a group kind of fashion. And so where it made it click for me, it made it work for me was that there was one person who was behind it, it was Thomas North, but he had an enormous amount of absolutely brilliant people helping him in the process you know, I think that's where it really, really changed for me. And it kind of opened it up too. it was a it was a point where for me, I had to come to that point on a on a personal level myself, just in terms of not being overtly solitary. Uh, I think that it, it is something that after I, I quit filmmaking in my 20s, I decided to just become like the solitary writer uh, because I was frustrated with, with collaborating with others. So that I, to me, for a long time, I felt kind of had a, a disdain for collaboration. So I, the notion of it being a collaborative effort was just kind of made me feel less like I thought less of the plays and poetry if it was more if it was more than one person who made them, you know. So once I got over that kind of hurdle, once I got over to uh, to seeing that that genius can be created by more than just one person what it was it was actually the game changer it was the thing that got me to find the right story it got me to find the right story it was like this story is is going to be primarily about about north but then like the second half of the book is going to be about all these other people all these other people he in north is still the central figure even as there's other chapters about these other people he's still the centerpiece but you're getting the perspective of these other these other other writers and their and their lives I think you and I have talked about this before, but it reminds me of the work House of Leaves and no way House of Leaves falls way short of this, but how that all came about, how Mark went in that, that document just passed around the internet and then turned into House of Leaves. It's a collaboration, but yet it's got a definitive writer. And the idea that 
everything really is a collaboration because we stand on the shoulders of the greats behind us and that there's iterations of ideas. So like we opened up with talking about taking this line from that over there and then here it is and, and being able to identify that this may be from that person, but it's different. It's tweaked. It's a collaboration of sorts And this is not a communistic idea because I'm not a communist, but I do love collaborations and uh, I see where the the current narrative is trying to take us. But I do love collaborations because I think I get fuel from them. And so when we're talking about storytelling, no matter who you are, no matter how isolated you are, you are still collaborating with your personal historic narrative and then anything that's influenced you all along. And then if you choose to work with, actually work with others or pass it around and get feedback from others, this is also a form of collaboration. I think the idea of collaboration becomes too cinched in. It's almost, we've got too much of a Victorian view of it where it's too corseted. This is a formal collaboration between so-and-so and so-and-so. And it takes away some of the natural ebb and flow. So as you move forward and you look and you bring these ideas of these other players, these historical characters now at this point into the mix of what this work is. Ultimately, where we are now, even though there's a good case being made for Thomas North, we've got these other characters absolutely stitched into the story of Shakespeare. They are just forever going to be there. Do you see where I'm going on an esoteric level here? Oh yeah, <laughs> well yeah. Now, when you're saying the uh, characters, you mean the other the other authors? Yeah, Marlowe, Devere, Bacon. Yeah. you know all all the other characters uh, as far as Absolutely. authors. They're now right. well, they, forever I, I, tied I, into this. Absolutely, like I definitely feel like I hope that it. I hope that you know that people will look into these other other authors because. It. I, I. I. Somebody asked me. I don't. I don't remember the exact question, but somebody asked me. So you know uh, about these other writers. Like they said, like I've never even heard of some of these people. You know, so like Marlowe is a big name. Uh, you know, you have uh, also Ben Johnson's a big name. Edmund Spencer's a big name. But then you have all these other people like Thomas Middleton. Yes. Uh, Richard Barnfield. John Fletcher, uh, John Webster, yes. uh, Thomas Kidd, uh, Michael Drayton, Thomas Watson, Edward Dyer, Thomas Sackville. Like all these people have chapters uh, dedicated to them, and a lot of people don't even know who they are. The way I look at it is if it would be as if, like, the way we look at that time is as if it would be like we look and people just pr- primarily looking like, oh, Shakespeare, oh, Shakespeare, you know, and that's it. And that, that the, the, it ends in terms of looking at that time. It just it ends at Shakespeare, and it doesn't help because a lot of Shakespearean authors over the centuries, some of them, some of whom I absolutely love, you know, like one of my favorite teachers on Shakespeare was this theater director named John Barton. 
who was a co-creator of the Royal Shakespeare Company in England. Uh, and he is, to me, one of the best authorities on Shakespeare. Um, he did a really great television series called Playing Shakespeare back in the 80s for the BBC. And it was a nine-part series where it was like a workshop where he would they would workshop these scenes from Shakespeare's plays uh, with some of the amazing actors, people like Ian McKellen or David Suchet or uh, Judy Dench or there's some other just really great Ben Kinsley was in there and some other great, great actors. And it, it, it brings it to life. It's just so exciting. I just love the way he does it. But he, like so many, whenever he brings up any of the other authors of that time, it's always to show how inferior they are to Shakespeare, how bad they are. They're like, okay, see, look, in this case, you'll see what Shakespeare's doing here in this scene. And look how much better it is what he's doing here as opposed to what Thomas Kidd did with the Spanish tragedy. Oh, what, what horrible writing is going on here. It's so hand, it's so over the top. There's, there's no nuance and blah, blah, blah. And I, you know, for a long time, up until recently, I bought into that. I bought into that kind of like Shakespeare propaganda that there's nothing of quality outside of the Shakespeare canon from those times. Yeah. You know, and that it, it's weird. It's, it's like a, it's been a narrative that's been told to us in Shakespeare studies for centuries. And it's like this kind of like worshiping Shakespeare as a God and then everything else is junk in comparison. But it, it, that really takes it out of the context of what was really going on at the time, because creativity was far more fluid than that, you know, and it, 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 it we really kind of get to get away from that kind of like lone genius kind of mentality and understanding like what you were talking about, that creativity is in flux. And it, even if a person is writing on their own uh, solitary, they're being influenced by other things. There's just, you can't, you can't get away from that. And that particular period of time, it was enormously so. There was like, everybody was collaborating, co-writing, revising, plays were constantly being revised. A, a play could have written by, you know, Robert Greene and Thomas Watson in the 1580s, but then being revised by John Fletcher and John Webster in the 1610s. You know, like that was a very common thing. And so it was constantly uh, a collaboration going on so like we look at like say the 1920s as a great period of of, of writing right and, and and other arts too as well yes. surrealism was was basically uh, created in the 20s and all these other art forms were created and then uh you have really you know cinema was becoming an art form in the 1920s a lot of things were happening in that time and uh if you were to say take writers right let's take a look at writers of the time and let's say like we only look at James Joyce. Now, James Joyce is my favorite writer from that period. But let's say like we have like Joyce scholars who are teaching everyone. And every time they bring up any other author, whether it be F. Scott Fitzgerald or Ernest Hemingway or uh, whoever could have been from that time, right? Any other author. And they're just only bringing those other authors up to show how bad they are in comparison to James Joyce. That's basically what Shakespeare scholars have done for centuries, is that other authors of that time are only being addressed, only being discussed to show how inferior they are to Shakespeare. It would be like also like during the beats, the, the, the beat period where, you know, it, the, to me, my, my favorite writer from that period was William S. Burroughs. But of course, you know, Ginsburg and, and Kerouac were doing great stuff, too. But like 
Burrow scholars, they only mention Kerouac, they only mention Ginsburg to show how inferior they are to, to Burroughs, <laughs> right? And totally discredit whatever they've done just simply because, well, we're just we're in so much awe of Burroughs with, you know, whatever these other people did was just, it pales in comparison, and Burroughs was this big genius, and it's like I think that's basically that was has been what's been going on for centuries, it's just like complete uh, discrediting of these other writers and their contributions. And I think what's also important too, even more so than say the beats of the fifties or the, the 1920s in Paris is that you're talking about the creation of modern English. You're talking about a, the creation of the language that is most used around the world. You're talking about the beginning of modern culture and who contributed to these concepts of language, of, of ways of looking at ourselves, to this whole thing? It, it, goes, it goes beyond Thomas North. It was a whole revolution going on at this time. So we really have to look at these times in, in ways where we're giving credit to the people who really created modern English language and modern, and modern culture. What we have to understand is that the biggest contributors to this were were not the aristocrats, were not the. I mean, they they some of the, like Thomas North came from uh, from wealth, and he was an aristocrat, so he's the the big player for sure. But a lot of these other people they came from humble backgrounds. They came from the the lower classes, the middle classes, and but the key thing with them was that that they were educated. They were either went to school and became educated, but I think even more importantly than going to the schools was that they were part of a, of a culture where they prized uh, education and learning and looking back at the past, looking back at the ancient Romans, looking back at the Greeks, and looking at that past, that history, uh, and really bringing it to the present and making it something new and fresh, and also looking towards the future. My feeling was like, in writing this book, it was one of the most exciting books for me to write. I mean, most of my books are autobiographical, and it's something where I have a need to write about my experiences, and I'll continue to do that, although my future books will be less so. But with, what was so exciting about this was writing about these people in that time and writing about these lives, these people that were absolutely uh, uh, vivid and just fresh. It transported me to those times in a way where I couldn't do it any other way. And um, it was an exciting time. It was absolutely an exciting time. It was horrible things going on, horrible living conditions, just atrocious things being done, pe people being killed. It was just a really horrible time in many ways, but also a very electrifying time. Uh, where, where really very revolutionary things were, were, were taking place. And I just wanted to give credit to these people. It was primarily Thomas North, but it was also all these others, you know, all these other people who uh, I absolutely fell in love with. I fell in love with, I was, for many of them, uh, in love with prior to writing the book, but in the process of writing the book, I really fell in love with them. You know, whether it be Thomas Middleton, Amelie Lanier, John Webster, Richard Barnfield, Mar Christopher Marlowe, Ben Johnson. They just, like, I just loved these people. And I really wanted to put it into the book. And hopefully it comes across in that way for, for readers. So when you're looking at this book, and it's, it's interesting when one stops a project, uh, a piece of art like this, and you know, to me, all books are art, 
even really drab clinical books are a form of art to me. And especially when we look back at the history of bookmaking. And so I always look at a book, no matter what kind of book it is, as a form of art because of the history of this. Absolutely. How do you feel about it now? So you you ride this momentum, you get in touch with the muse. This has been a long story for you for decades. You make this deadline, you make it happen, and you know, you've gotten to the last page and the book's closed and it's printed and all this. But the momentum is still there psychically. Therefore, the information, because of the momentum, continues to flow. As you're sitting here now, if you had more time, if you could go back in and put, has more stuff come to light for you? How's it now that you kind of close that last page? I had an idea of actually turning the, 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 the story into a trilogy and making it, you know, uh, the, the the first part of Thomas Norris' life, the middle part of his life, and the later part of his life. I just I decided to condense it into one book, and then and of course introduce the other characters too, the other people. Because I did that, and I I couldn't cut anything out. The book is is four hundred pages long, so it is it is something to jump into and through. It's just there's just so much I couldn't. I tried to to cut. I did cut quite a bit and change stuff, but. I had to include a lot of it, you know, there's just, there's so much that had to be left in there. But what I wanted to do was that in the last uh, few months since the summer, I was posting online, I was kind of like introducing people to who these people were. And I, I called it Meet the Anonymous Agnostic Antichrist, right? So meet these people. Who are they? <laughs> who was Thomas North? Who was Thomas Sackville? Who was Edward Dyer? And so forth, right? And I went chronologically and wrote like little short little essays on each person, like to give people an idea of the historical background for each person. And they're really short, you know. And so I have – and so I'm turning those 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 posts that I was doing – on social media about these people, I'm turning it into a short companion piece, a little book. It's only about 60 pages long. I'm going to publish it in uh, next month in January, and so it's it'll be like a companion piece, so like an intro into who these people were. It's just a, a historical background, personal stories, like who were these people, you know, all the stuff that I know about them. It's a lot of, of historical, uh, biographical stuff in the novel, of course, too. But what I wanted to do with this uh, this companion piece, uh, it's called Passionate Pilgrims. It'll be published next month. And again, it's really short. It's only uh, uh, 60 pages long. And uh, it's called Passionate Pilgrims because there was actually a collection of, of poetry that was published in 1599. And it, there was about, I think there was like only about 20, 20 uh, different poems. And they all were published as if they were written by Shakespeare. Nowadays, Shakespeare scholars say there's only about two out of the 20 poems were actually written by Shakespeare. All the other poems were written by other people. That's like standard, accepted, mainstream Shakespeare opinion. So I wanted to take the title of this book, which was published erroneously as if they were all by Shakespeare, but they're actually other people. I wanted to use that title for the title for all for the book about these people, which again, is this like a companion piece? So Part of the process was uh, so that as I published the book, 
anonymous agnostic antichrist on December 5th. I got that deadline and met it. I completed it. I came to a sense of fulfillment from that. But then, uh, of course, as always, whenever someone completes a project, there's always a, uh, you know, uh, petite mort uh, moment, you know, the little death after an orgasm. It's like uh, it is this you've achieved this thing, this project, you completed it. And then there's that that moment afterwards. You're like that that sense of empty emptiness, right? For sure, that's definitely something that I felt. Um, but right now, I'm in the and I'm really trying to 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 get the word out there. And it's not just because of the of the book itself. It's just in terms of what this book is uh, is representing. What is it trying to express in terms of the validity of of a personal story? The saving grace for mankind is our stories. What can save us are our own personal stories and preserving stories. And I really wanted to make it so that Thomas North and all these people, their story was preserved. You know, because I realized as a teenager, I was like, if it wasn't Shakespeare, then I want to tell the story of the person who really did this. Because I think it's like we owe it to that person to have their story be told. And it's like, I know there's been plenty of other people who have already done it, but I wanted to do it in a way where it made sense to me, you know. And so that's what, what I really wanted to accomplish is this idea of the validity of our personal stories not being lost to history, to making them, preserving them for as long as possible, you know. And so I'm going to continue to try to get people to be into this, to, to again, not just for the book, but in terms of the story that's being told. Thomas North and all these people and all their personal story. People get so lost in just the narratives of other things outside of themselves. And then some they get confused and they believe that their own narrative is not something to be trusted. And so they'll buy into another narrative and then they'll believe that that narrative that's not yes. themselves is themselves. Yep. And I just really like wanted to, to really claim a, one's personal narrative as the thing that we really have is something that we can really truly claim as our own, you know? And so um, what I'm doing is that along with this book, anonymous agnostic antichrist, and then now next month with passionate pilgrims, the, the short companion piece next year, I'm beginning a 20 year project, which is going to be about the tarot. So it's something I've been wanting to do for a while. And I wanted to do the Shakespeare book first and I wanted, once I did that, I wanted to get started on a 20-year project where every year I'd, I'd publish four short stories a year, and each short story would represent a character, well, a character would represent uh, the tarot card. So each tarot card would be represented in a story, in a short story, like 30 pages long. I've already written the first one, which is about the fool. And so, um, so yeah, so it, it the basically... What what it is is that this coming 20-year project is going to be a continuation of that uh, motivation to write the story about Shakespeare um, because it's going to be called the human drama. So this, this these these 78 short stories are all going to be expressions of the the variety of human experience, uh, you know and. As we live now in, in our day and age, I, I just, again, 
That's what I want to celebrate our human beings. I want to celebrate the human experience. It's something that the authors of the Shakespeare canon did. Uh, Thomas North and all his collaborators, it was they, they devoted their lives to uh, celebrating and exploring from the darkest uh, aspects of human experience to the most beautiful. Uh, it, I feel like that's really what we what was worthwhile for me, and that's really what I want to to continue to to share with the rest of the world. When doing this and digging into these historical characters, the real character, well, I mean, real is subjective, but, you know, Thomas North, etc. Have you had your genealogy done in a way that you feel secure, like, um, in a, you know, because it's there's a lot, I, I love amateur anything, but there's a lot of mistakes and genealogy is actually not easy. And a lot of people really reach for that character they want. And there's just a lot of really poor genealogy out there. And the world of genealogy itself is always in an uproar because new documents come in and they change a narrative. But have you been able to tie yourself into any of these characters. I'm always curious about this because of the passion of uh, stories coming down through genetic lines. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I found your story very fascinating too. And it actually connects in very important ways to the story of Thomas North and these other authors actually, you know, uh, enormously, you know, and, and so that was something that, uh, we were talking about that. I was I, I absolutely fascinated by that that family line and that, those family members. For me, I haven't gone back that far. Just so for people who will read, if you read the description on Amazon or if you read the opening introduction to the book, I make it clear it's a work of fiction. So I have an introduction that is a very it, basically it's a playful introduction, uh, and it, it's it's meant to to grab the attention of the reader. Uh, and so there's a lot of play in terms of what's real and what's not in the book. It's something that I, I've been fascinated with in terms of the notions of real and unreal stories. And so I, I actually created a scenario where I tell the readers that the, the, the book that you're about to read is actually based on a manuscript written by these authors. And this, these authors wrote this manuscript about their lives, telling the story of their lives, and that it was first discovered in 1993, which was 400 years after the name William Shakespeare first appears in print. But it was not noted at the time, and the people who found it didn't want it to be known. And so I, and I say, well, you know, uh, in 2022, uh, an anonymous person reached out to me and and told me that I was the descendant of Thomas North. There's a, an important part of the story of Thomas North is that he was actually born Will Hunter. So Will Hunter was his birth name, which was his legal father's name, but not his biological father. And so his biological father was actually the descendant of Gil de Rey. Gilles de was, of course, the Frenchman who was the infamous uh, serial, uh, the ch child serial killer who did all these horrible things. And he was uh, into the occult and did many 
many uh, practices. But there's some people who are defenders of, of, of Gilderay who said that he actually did none of those things. Uh, that it was all he was all set up by it was a conspiracy to set him up because he had a lot of powerful enemies. So it's hard to say which one is true. But I actually explore this this concept of what's a real genealogy, what's our real true identity. And so I wanted to open up the book with this fictional uh, kind of like playfulness of with the reader. I feel like it's, it's possible to find the truth and authenticity of something while also exploring illusion. So it's something I really wanted to do with this book and to, to set up the idea and set up some sense of doubt. So as, as the reader's reading it, they're reading it and they're thinking, wait, is he, is this guy full of shit? Is he really, wait, does he actually mean this? Is he actually <laughs> saying that he's the descendant of Will Hunter, who was actually Thomas North? And so I wanted to set up that kind of, that uncertainty, because again, like the whole canon is embraces uncertainty. And that's the agnostic aspect of the of what Thomas North was doing. The plays themselves do. There's constantly there's ambiguity is always being explored in the plays and poetry. Is this what's really going on, or is that what's really going on? More so than any other works of the time, there's an obsession with mistaken identity, with uh, deception, with uh, uh, people pretending to be something that they're not. Women uh, constantly, women, the women characters are constantly pretending to be boys in order to survive or able to to get to where they need to get. Yes. So, yeah, so I, I really wanted to play with deception, and I did play with that idea of, of the genealogy uh, of myself and also my connection to, to Thomas North. The sonnets are dedicated to uh, Mr. W.H., and nobody's been able to figure out who the heck is Mr. W.H. Is, is it the writer himself? Uh, the way it's phrased is as if it was the writer himself, because the way it's phrased is they only referred in that way they, in the dedication of the sonnets to the Mr. W.H. as always to the to the author. So the W.H. in this case was Thomas North's birth name, which was Will Hunter. So W.H. Will and then H. is Hunter. And then, of course, the, the Hunter is a connection to me. But it, it, a lot of this, again, is in playfulness. I created that that story. It didn't actually happen as much as I would love it to happen. It's a fictional thing, and that's the whole thing. Is this is as much as I am am, am set, obsessed with the truth, which I am. I also wanted to play with uh, the playful dynamic of, of illusion and of fiction. Well, I love that, and the truth is a very strange being, and there's nuance there. It's like saying the truth and being in flesh and living life and having your own inner stories projected in your daily world out into the outer world and how we project onto each other. It's all liminal. Everything's liminal. Yes. It's, it's all very interesting. And we have some favorite in common filmmakers from up, you know that mo movement in the 60s and uh this this idea of realism intrigues me through the lens of different perspectives and this idea of excellence through realism how i can look at something very 
gritty and think, wow, this is a form of excellence, something really raw and amateur, and think this is a form of excellence, and then turn my nose up at something super polished and, uh, you know, just everything is where it should be. And that's not a form of excellence for me. This is the thing that gives an individual uh, character, patina. And so I think when we get to that point, especially as artists, and that's what you and I are, uh, and that's what anyone that's in touch with the muse, and this is not exclusive, this is something that anyone can get in touch with. And that's one of the big leveling grounds here. And that's, I think, one of the greater arcs here of who is Shakespeare. <laughs> and the muse of Shakespeare, and the truth of Shakespeare. All of this stuff is at play when we start thinking about the idea of Shakespeare. There's a grittiness there, but there's a regalness there. There's a mystery there, but there's solids as well. And when you threw an Antichrist in it, so anonymous, agnostic, Antichrist, how did you come about I, I've heard all along in this chat we've had, which will be wrapping up here soon, I've heard all along how you got to that title. But let's wrap on how you actually did get to that title. Sure, sure. Well, I think the, the anonymous part was, you know, of course, that's where a lot of the plays were written anonymously up until the really the 1590s is when they, you start to see authors' names attached to plays. And even poetry itself was published anonymously. The first published poem with Shakespeare's name on it was registered anonymously, Venus and Adonis. And then just a couple of weeks after Christopher Marlowe uh, dies, you see all of a sudden William Shakespeare's name thrown on it, you know. And so as anonymous was a very common thing. You know, the, the artwork that I use for the, the cover to the book, which is called The Fool's Cap Map of the World, which uh, a lot of scholars believe it was uh, created or finished by the late 1580s, uh, maybe by 1590, uh, was created by an anonymous artist. We don't know who did it. We also don't know the intentions behind it. There's a lot of occult uh, phrases, uh, some really some interesting stuff, and then there's some, some bizarre stuff and some kind of dark and creepy stuff in there, uh, all written in Latin. And so uh, this work of art was done anonymously. A lot of this stuff was done anonymously back in those days. Uh, again, to protect the creator, you know, people's lives could be taken. Danger, for, danger, right? yeah. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of it was very dangerous, you know. Uh, the agnostic aspect to it was where I really do feel, like I mentioned before, uh, is that it was uh, a real big embrace of ambiguity, of uncertainty, um, and that was very revolutionary for those days. Like, if you look at most of what was being written in those days, it was very didactic. It was very much like the 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 message had to be very clear. It had to be very understood. And again, this had this tied into the repercussions that um, the authorities, you know, wanted to make sure they understood what you meant, you know. So, and so, it, but there was it was it was it was there was, was a lot of play. There was a lot of. Um, a lot of playing in terms of ambiguity so that it was a way of avoiding punishment for sure. Uh, but I think there was also a philosophical aspect to it as well. I do think that Thomas North and the, um, and many of the others 
if not through most of their life, through at different key points in their life, were uh, in, in their hearts agnostic. Now, the word agnostic wasn't actually created until many years later. But um, it was something that I felt the word atheist was was around circulating in those days. But I really felt that the agnostic was more appropriate um, because, again, in the book, I mean, not in the book, uh, well, in my book, but in the plays and the poetry, uh, ambiguity is constantly, constantly being explored, whether it be gender, whether it be sexuality whether it be intentions of the characters, like the motivations of the characters, why characters do certain things. Uh, Iago is one of the most fascinating characters. Yes. Uh, for, you know, yeah, because you were trying to figure out, well, why, is, why exactly is he obsessed with destroying Othello, you know? And why is he uh, obsessed with destroying not just Othello, but Desdemona and the other characters? What is, what's motivating this guy? And that's what, and, and there's just so many of the characters where there's just, ambiguity after ambiguity uncertainty after uncertainty and that's where where uh actors can have a a a field day of just exploring these characters and then the antichrist part of it was that these these times were very religious they were very religious times uh everything i mean extremely religious i don't think i think people have to understand like that just the to the degree of how much religion played in people's lives uh, whether it was be, being a Protestant or whether being a Catholic. And, of course, there was others being created at that time, too, Presbyterian. You know, King James was a Presbyterian. Yeah. Uh, you had, you know, Martin Luther was the first to break free from the uh, Catholic Church. And then, of course, you also had Calvin. Calvin was around in those times, so yeah. Calvinism. So, yep. And then Puritanism came around at this time. So there was just all these different strains of different Christianities, um, and I, I do think that the authors, I do think that uh, uh, North, and I think that uh, many of the others, definitely we have, we, there's definitely a lot of evidence to show that Christopher Marlowe was very much against Christianity. Um, and I think all forms of religion, you know, there's, there's, there's lines in his play, certainly it's by a character, but it's also, he was quoted by... Uh, uh, different people at the time, that's what got him in trouble with the authorities, is saying some really very uh, uh, heretical stuff, but talking about Jesus being a homosexual and his, his lover, his best lover was, was John, you know, and, uh, mm-hmm. and all this <laughs> other stuff just being very, very uh, uh, heretical and very punk rock, you know, and he's just like in your face just saying this, like really offensive things. And I think that... Um, it's weird because, like, on one hand, the times are very religious, but there's also a lot of shit talking going on. A lot of people just saying stuff, and so people getting killed over it. But at the same time, uh, you know, uh, people saying stuff, and 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 I think that there was a real kind of like, um, I think that uh, for for North and for and for the others, there was a real intention to this kind of like this very rebellious streak and that it was uh i think that uh it they they were kind of like uh against the establishment in a lot of ways uh religiously uh philosophically socially um and um i think that uh, what i show in the novel was that uh there were people in positions of power who also supported that streak and, um, you know, I think that was that I wanted to show that, 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 that was, 
like you said, that there has to be protection from somewhere. You know, where is that protection coming from? Because uh, the per the people who created the Shakespeare canon, right? And so in my mind, it was Thomas North and these others. They had a form of protection. So somebody was protecting them. Somebody made sure that these works were going to last. They, it was not an accident. You know, um, there was a lot of things that were accidental for sure. I think most of the stuff happened accidentally. But you can't you can't have that enormous body of work without some kind of uh, intention behind it. And again, so when we use the word antichrist, uh, it was used a lot in those days for anyone who disagreed with them. So if you were a Catholic, you call Queen Elizabeth the antichrist. If you're a Protestant, you call the Pope an antichrist. But in actual biblical term, uh, it's actually it's meant for anyone who's not a Christian. Anyone who's not a, a Christian is an antichrist. Uh, I, I, I forget. I believe it's in uh, Gospel according to John. But yeah, uh, these these are people who were very passionate, very very passionate, and um, you know they weren't some they weren't some fucking armchair communist or armchair anarchist. They're putting their lives on the line. Yeah. And they did it in a way where they made sure it was published and putting it onto the stage. Yeah, it was a matter of life and death. And yet it meant so much to them, you know. And I think that's where I wanted to show was that the modern world that we live in, which has a lot of freedoms, has a lot of uh, – we can say pretty much almost anything we want to say in, in most modern uh, societies. That came about because of certain people in the past – were fighting for that stuff you know like there were people who who were willing to w risk their lives to in the sake of of, of creative uh, freedom of being able to have uh to say what they want to say to think the way they want to think uh there was a, an enormous amount of mind control happening uh in from institutions and uh these are people who were, were fighting against it you know and the and again, like you mentioned earlier, like the people are out of have lost a lot of context of things, and the world we live in now didn't come out of thin air. It was people in the past who created it, who made it, put it into existence. And so, for in my mind, these people, Thomas North and these others, were enormously, enormously influential in creating the modern world that we live in today. Yeah, I agree, and I applaud you on this work and getting it done when you wanted to get it done, significant timing. Of course, we know that's important. So, Derek, how do people find this book? How do people get this book? What if someone wants a signed copy? Give us all the details here. You know, you can go to my website. So you can go to love-chaos.com, and there's the links for Anonymous Agnostic Antichrist. Uh, my previous books that I've published as well are all up there. And, uh, yeah, that's probably the best. There's links to my social media uh, on Instagram. And uh, and also there's a, a Facebook uh, group that I do called Love Chaos. And that's where I, I am engaged. I'm engaged with people the most on that Facebook group, Love Chaos, and also on Instagram as well. And so, but uh, the way to find the links to the book, uh, interacting with me on social media, it's all on that website on, on love-chaos.com. And you also have an Amazon page too, correct? Yeah, yeah. If you go to – so there's there's a few Derek Hunters on Amazon. 
I'm one of about at least three that I know of. So there's another <laughs> one who a guy named uh, uh, obviously the same name, but a guy who wrote a book called Outrage Inc. That's not my book. Uh, he's a he has a talk show. He's on radio. Uh, he's a comic book artist with the same name. So those aren't my books. But if you do find Derek Hunter and you see anonymous agnostic antichrist, you see other books like Faust, The Divine Chaos, Parzival, The Story of All Trilogy, The Love Chaos books, all these other books I've written, they're all there. Those are mine. Uh, yes, you can definitely find me on, on Amazon as well. It's a great pleasure to have you back here and uh, on the marquee. And I want to thank you for having this chat with me and doing this great work. You do great work in general. And I think history will be kind to you because of it. You have carved a place. So thank you for coming to the Cosmic Salon, Derek. Thank you so much, Nish. I really appreciate appreciate that. It's lovely talking to you the times before. And it's lovely talking to you now. And, and I, I cherish you, you know, and, and who you are and what you do with your life. And I'm very grateful to be, uh, you know, to be able to have conversations with you like this here in this platform, but also, you know, on Instagram and just, you know, it's a pleasure to have you in my life. Yeah, I feel the same. So thank you, everyone, for spending time with us here in the Cosmic Salon. Go get a copy of this book. Derek's a great writer and you go on a nice experience with him always, as you could see in this chat so stay frosty everyone stay lucid and remember the dreamer loves the dream the dreamer feeds the dream the dreamer awakens within the dream thank you for dreaming with Derek and i here at the cosmic salon i want to thank the producers of this show cass mother goose claire cathcart denise bissell Eggtooth, Liz Radikin, Inky, Eric Peterson, Heather, Jake Vanek, Kate Kukulkan, Carrie, Laura Dunn, Lila Marie, Lynn Radius, Marcy Shapiro, Mark Betcher, Melanie Poe, Mia Bell, Myra, Neil McNaughton, Noelle Jeanette, Pamela Hodal, Rod Knight, Sarah Etta, Stephen Mercer, Susan Jenkins, Susan Miller, Wise Night Owl, Lady Babs, our moderator, and Meredith that runs the socials out there, the website, and does all the bookings. Meow Face Killer on Instagram. I want to thank all the other patrons that come through Patreon or support in other ways with your time and energy, with your vibrations of love and your open hearts and open minds. Thank you very much for being here and spending time, the most valuable of assets in the realm of time. The dreamer loves the dream. The dreamer feeds the dream. The dreamer awakens within the dream. Thank you for dreaming here with me in the Cosmic Salon.